Welcome to the first of what we plan to be a regular Daily Maverick Sports podcast, where we'll discuss a range of sports with expert guests over the coming months. I'm Craig Ray, Senior Sports Journalist at Daily Maverick, and today there can be only one subject to talk about, Rugby World Cup 2019. Forget about the Proteas' woes in India and the Spa Proteas' highs in Belleville, where they won the African Championship, or even Kaiser Chiefs and Orlando Pirates have been drawn to meet in the Telcom Knockout Quarterfinals. Today, it's all about rugby. Nick Mallett begged us to come on. Hany Kamea cleared his schedule for Daily Maverick and Graham Henry was ready to Skype in, but we said no. We want real insight. So I'm joined in studio today by a man whose work you might have read over the years from his time as an anti-establishment rugby thinker at the Cape Argus to his columns in All Out Rugby. But Zelling Null is more than a mere rugby writer. He's also a respected technical analyst, spending more time than is healthy in dark rooms watching videos of men in tight shorts smashing into each other and trying to make sense of it. Zelling has worked behind the scenes for Toyota for Blitz in Japan under Jake White, at Western Province under John Dobson, and at USA Rugby with Gary Gold. Welcome, Zell. Great to be here, Craig. Nice awesome to- intro. I don't know if I can live up to all of that, <laughs> but uh, gr- it's a great intro. How much time do you spend in dark rooms? Like you say, way too much. <laughs> Shorts aren't as tight as they used to be, though, I suppose. Yeah, no, absolutely. But uh, Rugby World Cup, what have you... Uh, what has been your broad take on the tournament so far? We'll get into the nitty-gritty of the semi-finals coming up, but just in general, uh, has it gone the way you expected it would have gone? Um, I think if we uh, if we filter the search for uh, no typhoons, then I think the rest of the World Cup has been good. I mean, aside from that, uh, the issue of matches being cancelled, um, the actual on-field stuff has been great, I think. Uh, it's been a good advert for the game. We've had some upsets. Uh, Uruguay-Fiji was a fantastic result. Um, and Japan, the hosts, uh, overachieved. You know, I think a lot of people were optimistic about how they performed, but they really come to the party, made the playoffs. It's been a good tournament. Yeah, I mean, the upsets, uh, we, yeah, we are in the semifinals, the top four ranked teams in the world in the semifinals. And I guess that's kind of something world rugby has been wanting to get away from is it's fairly predictable. Japan making the last eight was, I suppose, the only slightly unpredictable result. But Australia, uh, you know, they were not good enough to really get beyond that this year, we didn't think. And one of Argentina and France was always going to miss out in that pool. So has rugby really moved forward, do you think, in terms of um, changing the landscape of the game with, with only one, let's say, outsider making the last eight? Yeah, look, I'm the last guy, and you know, this is the last guy to be sort of singing world rugby's praises. But I mean, I think it's great that uh, the, the, the semifinals validate the world rugby rankings. I mean, I think it would be a, a sort of a bad indictment on the world rugby rankings if the teams ranked six, nine, 12 and 17 were contesting the semifinals. So I think Japan's performance in this World Cup, making the playoffs, knocking out Scotland and Ireland, um, I think that in itself is uh, is the sort of glitch in the system that we, the romantics in us would like to see. I think the fact that the top sides are in the World Cup is is good. Um, yeah, I think, and I also think it's going to mean that we're going to have a good product come these semifinals. You're not going to have, hopefully, you're not going to have blowout results uh, where a team that doesn't patently doesn't deserve to be there gets obliterated um, and pushes another team into the final. So I think that is good. That is good for world rugby. I think this tournament is not supposed to be so much about the romance. It's supposed to be about the business side of rugby. And I think that, that's a good advert for rugby where things complement each other, like the world rugby rankings complementing the semifinals, I think is very good for the game. Yeah. And just some of the issues we've touched on, I mean, Hagabus, Typhoon Hagabus, that uh, let's go back to that quickly. I mean, I wrote a piece. It, it 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 hurt the integrity of the game because we didn't have that England France game. We don't know if France had won that; they would have gone into a different side of the pool. Um, you know, I know that 
they had the rules in place before the tournament started, two points each, a draw, nil-nil given. But, yeah, it wasn't like we, we didn't know the typhoon was coming and, it, uh, you know, they had three days to to move. They didn't. Their argument, World Rugby's argument, was that, well, we can't move 50,000 fans to a new venue. But surely it was more important to have the games played. We move 100 people to another venue, the, the teams and the squads and the support staff, and have the game played in wherever, Oito or one of those other places. Do you think it hurt the integrity of the tournament? Yeah, absolutely it hurt the integrity of the tournament. And for me, that's... That's the thing that surprised me the most is that that hasn't even been the conversation. The conversation has been from bleeding hearts about, oh, we don't want players and fans to get hurt by a typhoon. Nobody wants fans and players to get hurt by a typhoon. Nobody's advocating for that. And, um, nobody could have, uh, you know, foreseen an earth extinction event where a 500 megaton asteroid destroys Japan and we go, well, why aren't you playing the games? That would have been a different situation. We're talking about typhoons during Japan's typhoon season, an issue that was raised when they gave the World Cup to Japan. And it seems like World Rugby's contingency plan for typhoons was if it messes up the schedule, we'll just cancel those games. So fortunately, it hasn't really had too much of an impact on the playoffs, but that's actually irrelevant. The point is we are showcasing this game to the rest of the world and we can't even complete all of the matches because we didn't contingency plan for typhoons that we knew were coming. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and and obviously, uh, you know, the, the question is if it had been, say, the All Blacks who would have been eliminated had they not played a game, uh, that game against Italy, let's, for argument's sake, say it mattered. I mean, you do wonder if they would have taken a different view of it in that case. Yeah, spot on. I mean, I don't think we can say with any sort of certainty that that is the case, but there's certainly, you know, it's probably a little bit more than a conspiracy theory to think that they would have found a way to play that game. And again, to your point, it's not about moving all the fans and all the sideshows to another venue. It's about saying, we know there are going to be typhoons in Japan. Let's have a venue in the north center and south of Japan set up for an emergency situation to try and absorb one or two games being postponed so that we make sure these games are played. There won't be fans at that stadium. We'll have a limited broadcast, but the match will be played. And that's vital for the integrity of the tournament and then, you know, showcasing this event. And I mean, the argument is it's for the fans that we didn't, you know, the fans couldn't get there and therefore we didn't want to move the game. Well, they didn't get a game anyway. The, the fans would have quite liked to watch it on TV, maybe, if nothing else, to seen their team play. So, Precisely. you know, that argument held and, no And water. many of those fans are only in that typhoon area because you said, let's have the World Cup at, in Japan. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It's yeah. a bit it's a, too yeah. late. Anyway, moving on from Hagabus, uh, the other contentious issue of Rugby World Cup, before we get more specific to the games and the teams, is the refereeing. It's always contentious. Um, you know, and this weekend, Jerome Garces will referee the Springbok game, and he had a fairly poor outing in the, uh, in the opening game of uh, Rugby World Cup with the with Springboks and the All Blacks, and his record we'll get into a little bit later. But the general standard of officiating, I, I feel for the referees, because they changed this, this, this head-high rule Days before the tournament, literally, the new protocol on, on high tackles. And now we've got these dynamic situations happening in split seconds where a player ducks into a tackle and the referee's got no real option but to issue a red card because of a shoulder to the head. Um, so you've got to feel a little bit for the officials. But what's your, your sort of view as a man who analyzes the game? And, and, and how much, you know, in, I would imagine in your analysis, you do a lot of analysis of referees as well for specific games. Uh, do you think they've handled it reasonably well under the circumstances? The short answer is yes. I think the referees do an outstanding job. And that's not to say the referees are good. I just think in the, in the context of it, you know, it's almost like you're asking him to fly a plane at 50,000 feet with no windshield, no oxygen, uh, you know, through, through an asteroid field. It's just crazy what referees are expected to achieve on a rugby field. There are no lines. They've got to judge offsides 
based on an imaginary line. You've got a million people flying in from all sorts of angles to rucks. Uh, you've got imaginary gates. You've got, is the guy's knee down at the time that he's tackled and is a player holding onto him? And does that player release him before he releases the ball so he can get up? I mean, it's just like madness. There's no ways that a referee can be expected to be an accurate judge of what's going on in the field. They put the referee in that situation. And what makes it worse is that rugby's biggest strength, which is its global appeal and its global history and traditions, um, is its biggest Achilles heel in the sense that those French referees referee in the top 14 and the game in the top 14 is different to the game in England and the game in England is different to the game in New Zealand and the game in New Zealand is different to the game in South Africa. So those referees come out of a system where the home team generally wins in France, you know, away wins are in short supply. Um, and so when you throw all of that into the sort of melting pots of the World Cup, you're going to get this conflict where the style is is foreign to some teams and some players. Um so within the context of all of that sort of backstory, I think the refs have done a great job. I think there's been a lot of contentious calls. And I think that some refs, and I know you've done the numbers on this, some refs um, are uh, more oil to our water than others. Mm. Um, but, but you know, the point that, that uh, I think it was Stephen Jones raised that, you know, we need to spend more time analyzing the ref and getting around the ref. At the end of the day, New Zealand keeps winning. And if is one of two things is happening. Either World Rugby is out to make sure New Zealand wins all the time, which is a bit of a conspiracy theory to actually affect. This is a an organization that couldn't uh, contingency plan for typhoons <laughs> in a typhoon World Cup. So to think that they've got the resources to pull it <laughs> off is um, is a bit of a stretch. So so what we're saying then is that New Zealand have found a way to read and manage referees, and I think that there's something in that. You know that that perhaps they get the rub of the green, just like Richie McCaw. He he worked out what the shortcuts were, and he leveraged those. Yeah. So. So short answer, yes. I think the refs, in the context of the situation, have done a good job. Yeah, and I mean, it is a bloody tough job for referees. I mean, they, they, as you say, they've asked to do so much and see so much. And, and, and the laws are grey, aren't they? There's a lot of room for interpretation. You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, the referee tells the players beforehand he wants to see a certain picture of the scrum. That's the phrase they use, I want to see a picture. And that picture, whatever picture he wants to see, it defines the way he interprets the laws, which it shouldn't be the case. It should be that's the law and you ref the law. But what is it with this picture? Why do refs want to see a picture? Why don't they just say, well, that's offside, that's off your feet, therefore penalty or not? Yeah, so I think it comes back to your original point. There's so much gray area. You know, the whole game is gray area. Um, we've got, you know, close to 200 plus rucks <clears throat> per game. And at every ruck, the referee's got to, well, for you, you've got tackles before that, then you've got the rucks. So the referee's got to establish the legalities of the tackle situation. And then that turning into a ruck, the entries of players to those rucks, um, the release of the ball, who's on their feet, who's not on their feet. There's a bunch of physics involved in that. There's so much there that it, it's like cooking. Some, you know, two guys can make an omelet and both of them taste different. So I think for, for referees, you get a variance in their style of refereeing and the picture that they want to see based on their their preferences of the grayness, mm. you know. And I don't think it's massive differences, but I think when the margins are narrow, yeah, um, it it really counts. You don't really have massive scandalous refing issues when South Africa is playing Namibia. Those refing issues seem to be much more pronounced when it's South Africa playing New Zealand. Well, it's the tight games, isn't it? Because, Precisely. I mean, we'll go to Jerome Garces. Uh, yeah, South Africa's lost 10 of the 14 games they've played, and, and six of those 10 defeats have been by four points or fewer. So that, to me, tells a story. If they were massive blowouts, well, then, you know, it's not the referee. But when you've lost six games out of 10 under the guy by four points or fewer, that's a couple of decisions, isn't it? That's just 
uh, you know, maybe the Springboks didn't see the picture he wants to see. Correct. And that comes back to my original point about reading the ref. So you've got to, you've got to manage that ref, referee's preferences. You've got to understand exactly what it is he's looking for. And that takes time and research and analysis. How much time would a, a team, an international team, spend on a ref in your background? And your, your ba- based on the results, I think New Zealand must be spending lots of hours, <laughs> uh, many more than South Africa. Like I would, one I mean, referee analyst. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you, you kind of have to feel like that. And, and ultimately – like we're discussing here, rugby is a game that's decided by the referee and his, his interpretation. That's arguably the most important thing to be on point with is yeah. how's this referee going to ref this game? And that's quite, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. So that's how the game is played. But it's, it's, it's pretty sad. If you think of football, you can't name one football ref. Maybe, you know, Kalina, the guy with the bald head, everyone loved him because of his strange look. But in rugby, the referees are almost personalities in, in their own right. I mean, the fact that those Welsh fans posed with Yucco paper the other day and then he ended up doing the silly elbow thing, um, you know, suggests that the referees have become a bit uh, starlets in, in a way. Spot and on. maybe that's not good for the game. The, the refs have become such personalities. I would agree with that. I don't, I don't think that's good for the game. I'm not sure how you get around it, though. Um, I feel like the NFL solved most of rugby's issues 50 to 100 years ago. You know, they worked out very quickly that the backwards pass is going to be a problem. Um, they worked out very quickly that you needed lines on the field. They worked out very quickly that you can't have the uprights on the field. Um, they've solved those issues, and I'm not sure that there are other solutions that rugby could come up with uh, now that wouldn't radically alter the shape of the game. So in order to keep the game looking and feeling like it does now, I'm not sure how you do that without having a referee that's basically a storyteller. Last thing on the referees, yeah, they get a lot. They've got a lot to get you know, on their plate, and they're not going to get everything right all the time, but does great me and it grates a lot of fans that they get what I perceive as the simple things wrong. They miss a forward pass or the offside line. I know there aren't painted lines or there aren't five-yard lines on the field, which I, I think maybe we should look at. But it's, it's quite obvious to see a defensive line that's strung out across the field and you're standing at the ruck looking down the defensive line. It's quite, quite clear for the ref, I think, to see if the back line's offside or not in, in its defense. And they're missing those obvious things. And I think that's what gets the fans most. It's not the technical breakdown law where you could give 17 penalties at any given breakdown. It's its the really obvious things, the forward passes. I mean, Yucca Paper's decision toward that uh, try for Wales the other day, the guy ripped the ball towards the French line. How is that, in terms of physics, possible that that ball went backwards? So, you know, the question remains, why aren't they getting the simple things right? Yeah, so, so I agree with you 100% on that, but I think it's a little bit unfair to expect referees to be binary some of the time. And I think those referees are successful and... Uh, are chosen to do those tests because of their ability to tell the story of the rugby match. And a lot of that storytelling involves making decisions about whether actions by one team are having an influence on the contest against another side. And I'm guessing here, but I would say that there are times where even if a ref is seeing something, um, and I'm not talking about a forward pass here, I'm saying things like offsides, he may be deciding that it is not influencing the contest mm. enough to stop the contest for a penalty that sets up a lineup, that sets up a mall, that sets up another mall, that sets up another mall, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You no, know? fair enough. And I mean, we do want the game to move along a bit as well. So Correct. maybe TMO has been the issue. Maybe we should go back to the ref as the sole arbiter of, of, of decisions. And then we would have incorrect yes. decisions, but we wouldn't have so yes. many stoppages and we'd all have to get on and live with it. Yes. Okay. Yes. Refs, done. In fact, if we're going to do that before we get off the refs, <clears throat> if we're going to do that, we need to get rid of replays, man. 
You know, back in the old days, we didn't spot all these forward passes because we didn't have 58 different action replays. Yeah, but Australia would just be chucking the ball forward then if they didn't have replays because that's how they play. They, they, true. they never see a forward pass. True, true, yeah. true, true. But I mean, I, you know, if we're going to trust the ref, then we need to trust the ref. I think what happens, the reason we have the TMOs, we had the ref. The ref was making all the calls. Then we came with action replay technology and the fans were irate because he missed the forward pass. Then, then we said, got the TMO. Then we got the TMO. Now he's saying, let's go back to the ref. So... Yeah, but the TMO initially didn't have a lot of power. It had to be a ref's decision to go to the TMO. Now it's flipped around. The TMO comes to the ref all the time. Correct. And some of those TMOs you kind of feel want to get involved in the game more than they should. But anyway. Off the refs. We've got to soldier on because uh, Rugby World Cup semifinals. Semifinal teams, well, it's uh, Thursday morning where we're recording this. So we've only seen the Springbok team and we've only seen uh, the All Black team so far. Um, Wales will be pretty much what we expect. There's not going to be much change to Welshman. the Welshman. Yep. Lots of Welshmen, lots of Joneses, but, um, all backs. Scott Barrett at flank to play England. That's a big call. Uh, or maybe it's not a big call because his numbers in super rugby where he's played flank have, are almost comparable with, um, Peter Steph de Toy. So maybe it's a stroke of genius by Steve Hansen. What do you make of that call? Uh, I think, I think Hansen is expecting a tactical shootout. Less so than uh, a coast-to-coast running game against England. And he should do because England are the masters of the percentage tactics under Eddie. Um, and so he's picked Artie and Sam Kane in the past as his flankers, two breakaway guys, two guys that add mobility to the pack and can get to the edge of the field. And I think that's been for matches against sides that are probably going to play a bit more of a passing game. Um, I think against England, he knows it's going to be a lot of kick tennis and then uh, it's going to be a search for momentum. You know, and gain line's going to be key. Um, and obviously in a kicking game, the line-out features as well. So when you add Barrett to the pack as a flanker, you now have an extra line-out option. You have a big body on the gain line. Um, and what you give up is um, cardio. You give up, you know, uh, the ability to get to the edge quickly. Um, and you're probably not going to need that too much against England. If anything, if, if England reacted to the selection of Barrett by widening their game, that in a way is a small victory for New Zealand. So, yeah. So, yeah, that, that, yeah, that, I think it's New Zealand are expecting a physical confrontational encounter with England, as are all of us. England are, I suppose, the closest thing to the Springboks in many ways. That the Springboks of old. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and to well, measure well, they're the going back now. there now, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. Um, under, under Rassi Erasmus. Yes. So, I suppose that le- leads me to my next question to you. How does England beat the All Blacks? The short answer is they score more points. <laughs> Thanks for that. Isabel. That's why we pay you the bit. Uh, yeah. I think it's worth noting um, that the, the teams that kick the most are in the semifinals. Um, yeah. And, you know, I feel like we could talk about that for 20 podcasts because especially in this country, we've been so enamored with this game that David Campisi has sold us about running the ball and passing the ball and offloading the ball. And ultimately, this is a game that's won by what you don't do, not by what you do do. So... What you have to dominate in rugby is the game line and you have to, you have to be able to control where the game is played. Uh, field position is vital. And that's why Eddie has spent four years drilling that into his players and getting bad social media from it because it's something that doesn't come natural to players who've come out of uh, the private school system where you've got schoolmasters that are romantics about the game and think that the way the game should be played, quote unquote, is to move the ball to the wing and everybody touches the ball. And unfortunately, the reality of the data shows that that's not the case when teams are evenly matched. Pause there for a second. Go. Speaking of the kicking, quarterfinal, England against Australia. Australia carried the ball 143 times and they made 578 metres, which is not great. That's about four metres per carry. 
They only kicked it 15 times for 391 meters. England carried the ball 68 times, which was less than half of what Australia carried it. And they only made 275 meters. That's not really important uh, as far as they were concerned. They kicked for 731 meters. They outscored Australia by 24 points, despite the fact that they had 38% territory and 36% possession. And, uh, you know, that just tells the story. Australia played all the rugby in really terrible parts of the field. And England they trusted their defense, 193 tackles. And eventually the turnover came. Four tries to one. Yeah. I mean, that's the point, is that England were unapologetic about putting boot to ball. Australia came out saying, we, we, we're not going to kick, we're going to run it. We're going to play the game the way it's supposed to be played. And the team that did the kicking did the scoring of the tries. And guys will point to other games. Guys will, you know, we'll just probably discuss Japan a bit later. And you can, there have been teams in the past that are overtly running teams that win matches, but it's about the probability. What are mm. the chances that you're going to win playing that way? Um, you know, you can hit bullseye with a dart over your shoulder, not looking once in every 6,000 attempts. Yeah. That doesn't mean that's the way to play darts. <laughs> so England repeatedly show this. Eddie Jones is a winner. Jake White is a winner. Gary Gold won in, in Durban with the Sharks playing exactly that brand of rugby. Um, Hany Kamea was successful. That's the way that you win test matches. And the only time you don't win matches playing that way is when you're playing against a weaker opponent that you can physically dominate. Yeah, I mean, and then if you're playing Namibia, well, you know, you're pretty much going to, you can do whatever you like. There's no, there's no way they're going to beat you. Talking about Japan, talking about running, Japan players had a combined 1,606 touches in all their games in the World Cup. And they made only 51 handling errors, which is amazing. That's 31.5 touches per handling error. So that says they're great. They offload, they handle the ball amazing. well, they look good. They got smashed 26-3 by the Springboks in the semifinal, in the quarterfinal. Correct. Um, you know, that probably suits the way Japan want to play the game. But if they want to become a real threat in world rugby, they are going to have to be a little bit more pragmatic because those offloading skills will, will really be useful when you're getting into those red zones, when, when they're playing inside the 22. And then those skills will come into play. But the problem is they appear to be running the ball and touching the ball for the sake of it at the moment in, in maybe poor areas of the field. Yeah, so I, I think Japan were extremely pragmatic, to be honest. I think Jamie Joseph said, look, uh, I've got a basket of lemons here. These guys are, none of these guys are World 15 players of the year. How do I take a team like this and find a way to win? There's no ways that if they played conventional percentage tactics, Japan would have stood up against better opponents because they would lose game line every single time. In the collisions, they would lose um, set piece. They would probably struggle. Their scrum was good, but line outs is maybe an area, the mall would be an, an area where they, they they could be targeted by more sort of uh, heavyweight sides. So I think they were extremely pragmatic. Um, basically what Japan did is what the Lions did uh, under Johan Ackermann. Is, uh, they just adopted a game plan that was based on endurance, conditioning, speed, um, and uh, disguised their lack of physicality, their lack of power, um, and baited teams into playing a wider game. It's basically like if Floyd Mayweather got into a boxing match against Mike Tyson, he would be stupid to stand in front of him toe-to-toe -to -toe mm. and trade punches. Um, the only way he wins is if he gets Mike to chase him around the, around the ring. Yeah. And that's exactly what Japan and the Lions did. Um, fortunately for South Africa and the other Southern Hemisphere teams, they'd seen the Lions do that. Ireland and Scotland had never seen the Lions. <laughs> they don't play super rugby. So when Jamie Joseph rolls out the Lions blueprint in the World Cup, they completely take the bait and they get sucker punched. And uh, yeah, I, I think Jamie Joseph did a great job there. When Japan, Japan played Samoa, teams that are more evenly matched, they actually played more of a percentage game. Okay. Um, 
I think they won 38-19 or something. They they kicked more. I think they kicked 27 times in that match. They played more of a percentage game and they came out the winners, but there was parity there. Yeah. They you know, they could they could they could uh contain and cope with and handle Samoa. Um they were never going to get that right against India and uh, against Ireland and 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 then South Africa. Speaking of South Africa, let's move on to that game. South Africa against Wales. I mean, they've lost the last four against Wales. A lot of those end of the year tour. One of them was in Washington with a completely experimental team that Rusty Rasmus put out his first test in charge. Um, the Springboks have been very pragmatic. Uh, we, we've seen the stats. We've, we've done some numbers on Squids Rugby on Twitter. He does a lot of analysis. He came up with an interesting um, concept and he studied the Springboks. And in their 22, they kick for touch. They try to get out of trouble. They almost never run out of the 22. And when they get to the opposition 22, it's more ball in hand. They go through the phases looking to um, yeah, score tries or find a way through. But between the two 22s, the South Africans tend to play five phases and then kick. And every single time in the last two matches anyway that he analysed, it was exactly five phases and then they kick for position. So the box playing zonal, um, they want to play in the right areas of the field. Just explain why... Look, you, we don't know that the five the five touches or the five rucks is is a standard across all the games. We haven't analysed that, but what's your what's your takeaway from that analysis? Yes, I think there's two things there. I think uh, Russi is a is a big student of the game. Uh, he knows the numbers. Um, the percentage probability chance of scoring a try as the phases increase goes down mm. dramatically. If you don't score in the first, I think it's the first three phases of play is is sixty percent of tries. Yeah, it's a um, ridiculous other, stat how it goes down. The other 40% is across the next set of tries. So Russi's probably looked at that spectrum and decided that anything after five is not worth the risk in terms of handling errors and turnovers and penalties. And he's decided that five phases is, uh, is, is the sort of term of the attack. Um, and then I think what you might find is that, so your point about them exiting from their 22s, bang on points. Exiting is vital to winning test matches. The more rugby you play in your own 20 the more chance you have of losing Australia yeah um, and and I mean there's a lot of nuance that goes into that you know we just say that sort of thing but it comes back to the old sort of the whole boys school idea you know you tell a player that we play no rugby in the 22 and he gets the ball and he feels like it's on and he sees a gap and he's been coached his whole childhood to take space when he sees it it's very difficult to break that habit so that exiting is massive to winning breaking that sort of uh, thinking process um and then, yeah. Secondly, between the twenty-twos and their five phases of play, what you probably find is that they have a set phase somewhere between those twenty-two, those two twenty-twos, and they have a strike play that's two, three, four phases long. Um, and then there's a cue based on that. So if they get gain line in those first three phases, they probably continue to play. And if they don't get gain line in those first three phases with their strike and whatever comes after that, um, it's possible. I don't know this for a fact. It's possible that they have. Um, a run of two or three phases that they run to set up a kick. Because the last thing you want to do, and this has been a problem in South Africa in the past, is play, 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 then get to a dead end. And now you've got no options. And then you bang a kick downfield. kick because you're in a poor position, it right? It can be a great kick. But if you're not set up to contain what comes after that kick, so either to contest it or to shut down the receiver and limit his options and pour resources into kick receipt, then you become vulnerable. So when you, you know, so, so so you're saying three phases they're trying to attack, going nowhere, two more phases to set up a defensive play, if you like, getting their players in the right position. Correct. Two phases invested in taking the initiative so that you kick on your terms. Uh, you know, and, that's, and I think that's what New Zealand gets incredibly right, is they don't necessarily 
just engage in kick tennis. These guys move defenders around to create spaces, to create mismatches, so that when they kick, there's an opportunity to get the ball back. And that's what New Zealand has mastered. Is they regathered 19 of 29 kicks uh, in their quarterfinal. There you go. So in the past, you go back to the 2012 Stormers, what we did was kick, 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 tackle, 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 300 tackles, 250 tackles. We'd win a turnover and kick it again and continue to do that until we'd literally just wore the other team down by attrition. And the game has moved in a sense tactically where teams are now finding ways where they can kick and have a high probability of getting the ball back. So kicks don't turn into tackles, kicks turn into carries. And that's the key to winning test matches. Cheson Colby out this weekend. Big factor in the Springbok kicking game in the fact that he chases so well, he gets off the ground, he contests, he's good under the high ball despite being a small man. Is that a big blow? Is Spoo and Causey good enough in that area of the game to to do what Cheslin Colby does? Look, I think Cheslin is arguably the best player in the world in space. I mean, his, his, his uh, escapability, his elusiveness, his agility is just un, unparalleled. He's incredible. He can make anybody miss. Um, and I think that the box sort of jam defense where they shoot up really hard from out wide needs a guy who has massive acceleration and isn't trucking a big body 20 meters upfield and then having to backtrack to reload to do it again. I'm not sure whether Sabu has got, um, you know, can do the, the same number of rep- repeated sprints. At 100 kgs, he's taking a lot more body up the field and then backtracking to reload. So so I feel like Cheslin is probably a better asset there. In terms of the kicking game, um, I'm not sure Sabu can can match Cheslin. I think Cheslin's a very underrated kicker, and I think he's extremely good under the high ball. Um, what, of course, he does offer the box is a guy who you can play to and doesn't need any babysitting to recycle that ball. He's a big body. He can get gain line on his own physically when there, when there is no way to make people miss. Defensively, he's a guy who can look after somebody. He can contest a wide breakdown. He can look after a wide breakdown. So it's, it swings and roundabouts in a way. I think we lose in the kicking game with Sabu, but I think in a game that becomes more of an open, um, uh, more of a sort of set-piece contest and kick tennis, um, where it's more controlled, I think Sabu is of more value. Uh, mm. it's, it's in the looser broken play where Cheslin is just, he can turn uh, a turnover that's 80 meters away into a try. Well, to start wrapping this up, how do the box beat Wales? Because set-piece line-out, the box 57 from 57 on their own line-out in this World Cup. Okay, I know they've played Namibia and Italy and Canada, so I guess they've only really played, I mean, Japan or not a great line-out team either. So maybe that stat's a little bit misleading, but the box have been good in the set piece. But Wales are also equally good. And and Wales haven't lost a game that, that has mattered this year. They're Six Nations Grand Slam champions. They lost a couple of warm-up games, but that's when they were tinkering. They won all their group games in in, in Rugby World Cup. They're not, a, they're not a beautiful team. They're not the Welsh of the 70s, JPR Williams and Gareth Edwards, but they're pragmatic. They've got a great coach, and they know how to win. Uh, are they... Really, you know, will they be the toughest test the Springboks have faced at this World Cup? I mean, I know they played the All Blacks, but that game didn't really matter in terms of the outcome. Is this their biggest challenge? Yeah, I would say yes. I would say yes, and and I think that you know we we beat Japan, we smothered Japan, and choked them out by with our pack. Uh, you know, it started slow and it finished quick. Um, and I, I was disappointed with our backs, but I think in this Wales game, our backs have to win this game for us. I think our forwards will get parity against Wales, if not ascendancy. I think the set-piece battle is going to be huge in terms of controlling the field position because if we leak penalties at the scrum, we are going to be defending in our in our half a lot. Um, so set-piece is obviously vital, but 
and, and I feel like we can match them, you know, in terms of physicality, winning the collisions up front. I don't think that's a problem. We, I think we, we need to create an edge for ourselves is in the back line. This is the game where, uh, Andre Pollard's kicking has got to be on point. Uh, Fuff's decision making has got to be on point. Damien has got to be able to make people miss. Lukanyo Am's attacking kicking game has got to come into play here. Uh, Vili has got to be good under the high ball and, and make good decisions on, on what we do with that possession. Um, I think this is a game that's going to be decided by our backs for that reason. Um, and I'm not sure that Wales have got the same, uh, ceiling in their back line. You know, I think, I think, I think our back, our back line has a higher ceiling. We've been underperforming, but I think that the Bok back line definitely has a higher ceiling. We could talk about this for hours, but, uh, maybe we'll do it again next week for the final if the Springboks end. But listen. Predictions? What do you think? All Blacks, England? How do you think that one's going to go? I picked England to win the World Cup in 2016. So I've got to back <laughs> Eddie. I'm a, I'm a huge Eddie fan. I feel like percentage tactics will, will win out. Um, if anybody can stop England, it's going to be New Zealand. Uh, I'm not, sh- I'm not a huge fan of the changes that the All Blacks have made recently with Barrett at the back and Moanga at 10. It's a bit of a late change, but you know, it's the All Blacks. They're going for a third successive World Championship. Uh, it's a tough one, but I'll, I'll give it to England. I think we'll beat Wales. I think the box will beat Wales. Uh, and that'll set up a massive, hopefully, a massive uh, massive final. I quite like the idea of a Springbok All Black final simply because it'll be the 100th meeting between the sides. Oh, what, wow. a, what an occasion. If it was the 100th time I they play a test match, that. it would be the World Cup final in 2019. So I want it for that reason only. Although I think, you know... It doesn't matter who the box play. If they get to the final, it's going to be a pretty tough game. Selling Nell, thanks for coming in. Thanks for the first uh, Daily Maverick Sports podcast, and we'll do it again sometime. Looking forward to it. Thank you.